Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Many lost video games have been documented in recent years. This kind of documentation is incredibly important for the preservation of video game history. But did all of these lost games actually exist? We've decided to delve into the history of three lost Nintendo games and see if they truly are a lost video game or perhaps just a rumor or misunderstanding that got out of hand. So without further ado, let's get into the games. According to IGN, a game titled Animal Crossing 2 was announced in a Japanese magazine in the early 2000s after the first game's release. It was planned to hit the GameCube, but ended up being cancelled. This isn't the only place with details about Animal Crossing 2 though. The Lost Media Archive, the Animal Crossing Wiki, Game Facts, and lots of other websites and YouTube videos chronicle what they call an unreleased GameCube game and a lost sequel. But while investigating Animal Crossing 2, some of the info we found just didn't seem right. Most of these websites and YouTubers show two screenshots from the game's beta, but none of them cite a source for those screenshots. Using reverse image search, we found the first screenshot is actually from Nintendo's official Japanese website, and in reality it's a screenshot of the original Nintendo 64 game that only released in Japan. The second screenshot was first published on a French gaming site called Game Cult in June 2002 and also appears on Nintendo's official Italian website for Animal Crossing 1 on GameCube. In other words, the only two screenshots of this supposed lost sequel are actually screenshots of the first game. Another piece of evidence often shared is this article on a fan site called Game Cubicle, published on Christmas Eve 2002. It says Japanese magazine Famitsu published a list of Nintendo games scheduled to launch in 2003, one of which is Animal Crossing 2. We couldn't find that exact issue of Famitsu, but we really didn't need to, because we found a Japanese article published the exact same day, Christmas Eve 2002. They also reposted Famitsu's report of Animal Crossing 2 getting announced for GameCube, but it says both games' titles are tentative. 
And actually, there was an Animal Crossing game released in 2003 called Animal Forest E+. Let's do a quick historical recap for folks unfamiliar with the series' origins. In Japan, the first game was called Animal Forest and released on Nintendo 64. It was later ported to GameCube with some enhancements, which was called Animal Forest Plus. Then that game eventually got localized for America as Animal Crossing and had lots of new text and even holidays added so it makes sense to Americans. Nintendo was so impressed with the localization they decided to localize that version back into Japanese and call it Animal Forest E+, which means there were actually three different versions of the original game released in Japan. Animal Forest, Animal Forest Plus, and Animal Forest E+, and it's that last version that released in 2003. So Famitsu Magazine didn't actually announce a sequel, they were announcing E+, which at the time was tentatively titled Animal Forest 2. IGN's page for Animal Crossing 2 says it was announced in a Japanese magazine. They don't say which magazine, but it's probably safe to assume they mean Famitsu. There's lots of opinions and speculation out there, but the Famitsu announcement and two screenshots are the only sources ever cited, and they're all pretty easily disproven. In fact, if you look on the back end of the Animal Crossing wiki, most of the wiki's contributors believe it's fake, and are saying the Animal Crossing 2 page should be deleted. During our research, we also spent some time googling around in Japanese, and we couldn't find any Japanese fans talking about Animal Crossing 2. Two. So it seems this whole idea of an unreleased GameCube game was all just a misunderstanding created by English-speaking fans who didn't know what they were seeing. So with all cited evidence proven false, we deem Animal Crossing 2 to be… fake. Next up is F-Zero for Virtual Boy, a game that some fans call G-Zero and others refer to as Zero Racers. According to a number of websites, including the Lost Media Wiki, Unseen64, and a couple of F-Zero wikis, Zero Racers was only shown to the public once, and that was at E3 1996. But we couldn't find any evidence that the game ever made an appearance. We watched old footage, read old magazines, and even spoke to some gaming journalists and one Nintendo staffer who were there, but absolutely no one saw it at E3 1996. So we reached out to Chris Radke, the guy who founded Planet Virtual Boy all the way back in 1999 and still runs it to this day. He told us, In the early days of documenting the Virtual Boy, we believed that Zero Racers had been shown at E3 1996, and at one point that info was on Planet Virtual Boy, but nowadays we know that the game has never been shown at any trade show, and strangely it was never covered in any Japanese magazines. No video footage of Zero Racers exists to my knowledge. He told us there's a couple homebrew games hosted on his site, Formula V and Elevated Speed, which are about as close as we're ever gonna get to seeing Zero Racers in action. Truth is, Zero Racers was only ever seen in two issues of Nintendo Power Magazine, the July 1996 issue with this tiny preview, and the August 1996 issue with this much larger preview taking up two full pages. With help from Art of Nintendo Power, we got clearer and higher resolution scans of these magazines than what was available anywhere on the internet, so you can actually actually read the tiny text for the first time. Those are the screenshots you'll be seeing throughout this video. We should note that a few other magazines from that time period also mentioned G-Zero, but their information and screenshots were just lifted from Nintendo Power, so all screenshots we're using here are directly from the original. The unfortunate truth is that no one's ever seen Zero Racer's gameplay, at least no one outside Nintendo. So with a little help from Planet Virtual Boy, we got in touch with Jim Warnell, a localizer who worked at Nintendo of America for almost 
almost two decades. After exchanging a few emails, we had an hour-long Zoom call so Jim could share his story. He told us, As an associate producer, I wrote screen text, manual and package text, oversaw the debug and approval process, liaised with NCL, worked with marketing and advertising, etc. Anything that had to do with the North American launch of a game was my responsibility. G-Zero, later known as Zero Racers, was on my list of projects. Zero Racers was done. We had a complete manual, package, and label done for the game. It went through lot check. It had an ESRB rating. It was complete. He also said the game's title was changed from G-Zero to Zero Racers late in development to avoid confusion with F-Zero. Zero Racers wasn't a subtitle. It was the game's full title, because it wasn't a direct sequel to the SNES original. It was actually a spin-off. Presumably the G and G-Zero and the Zero and Zero Racers are both references to gravity, since instead of cars, this game had spaceships and all 15 tracks were made of tunnels where you can fly in all four directions. As far as how it sounded, Jim says, from what I can recall, it was like F-Zero in a tube. It wasn't bleep and bloopy, it was very tin and metallic-y. There wasn't background music from what I can remember. Nintendo Power's preview shows four ships, the Falcon, Stingray, Goose, and the Origami, but it never revealed who was inside. According to Jim, the four racers were Captain Falcon, Jody Summer, James McCloud, and an alien that he can't say with 100% certainty, but he's pretty sure was Pico, who piloted the Wild Goose in the original game. Jody Summer wasn't in the previous game, but eventually made her way into F-Zero X on N64. The same can be said for James McCloud, a human character clearly modeled after the father of Fox McCloud from Star Fox. Jim said he didn't have to localize much text for the game itself, as it was a pretty straightforward racer. But there was some story text in the game's manual, just like the SNES original. Jim also told us just how extreme the testing process was back in the 90s, saying, When they were testing people out for Virtual Boy, they had us go through this... Did you ever see the movie Clockwork Orange? The scene where the person's pinned down in the chair and they've got their eyelids open? That was kind of like what Virtual Boy testing was like. They would dilate our pupils, they would have us sit with our heads in this vice type thing, and they would shine light in our pupils. They would have these plastic rods, they would have them just barely touching our eyes, and they would say, okay, no matter what, don't blink for a minute. They put us under just the most bizarre tests, just to make sure, I guess, to make sure the thing was safe to use. They would blow air into our eyes, they would have us play a Virtual Boy test kit for 10 to 15 minutes, then we'd have to rest. Then they dilate our eyes again two or three rounds of these just bizarre, inhumane torture tests just to make sure this thing wouldn't kill me or blind me or whatever. But, um, yeah, it was interesting. It was a pretty harrowing experience, but fortunately things turned out pretty well for Jim since he got to voice the announcer in the series' next game, F-Zero X. You got boost power! Yeah! The final lap! Zero Racers was completely finished, localized into English, had its packaging and manual, and was rated E for everyone by the ESRB. But Nintendo cancelled it along with two other complete games at the very last minute, which Jim attributes to probably wanting to leave the Virtual Boy behind and focus gamers' attention on the upcoming Nintendo 64. Zero Racers wasn't found in the recent Nintendo Giga Leaks, but Jim's confident Nintendo still has it in a vault somewhere and could bring it back anytime. That's probably never gonna happen, but who knows? Maybe we'll see it on Nintendo Switch Online someday. So with first-hand testimony from Nintendo's localizer and an official rating from the ESRB, we rate Zero Racers as 100% real.
Now moving on to this video's next lost game. In November 2016, Eurogamer reported the next Pokemon game would release on Switch the following year, and that it would be an enhanced version of Sun and Moon, codenamed Pokemon Stars. The article's author, Eurogamer's deputy editor Tom Phillips, claimed to have several sources for the story, and at least one was saying the Switch edition would add new Pokemon. Fans were excited to hear about the jump to an HD console, and even though it was never stated explicitly by Eurogamer, most assumed Stars would bump up the resolution to at least 720p. Some fans even canceled their plans to buy Sun and Moon on 3DS and just waited for Stars instead. Hype continued to build over the next few months, especially when the Pokemon Company announced a new campaign called Look Upon the Stars, which saw the release of an entire line of Stars-themed merchandise. Series director Junichi Masuda made a tweet starting with the words Pokemon Stars that some fans interpreted as a teaser for things to come. Anticipation peaked in mid-2017 when Amazon UK began selling pre-orders for Pokemon Stars. It seemed to just be a placeholder as there was no box art and the release date was January 2030, but that didn't stop it from climbing the sales charts and reaching number 87 on Amazon's bestsellers list for PC and video games. Even when Ultra Sun and Moon were announced in June, the Pokemon Company's official website described the games as eventually coming to the Switch. They quickly deleted the Switch reference and put out a statement saying it was just a clerical error but some fans believed the slip-up was Nintendo accidentally revealing stars earlier than intended. Ultra Sun and Moon were, after all, very similar to how Eurogamer described Pokemon Stars, an expansion of Sun and Moon released in Holiday 2017 with a few new Pokemon. The main difference was that there were two games instead of one, and it was on the 3DS, so to some, a Switch release still seemed likely. But as time passed, it eventually became clear that Pokemon Stars was never coming. One year after his original 2016 article, Eurogamer's Tom Phillips returned with a post-mortem titled, So What Happened With Pokemon Stars? Long story short, he said his sources indicated that Stars' cancellation was primarily a casualty of Nintendo's business strategy. After the failure of the Wii U, Nintendo was originally planning to release three of their biggest IP for Switch year one, Zelda, Mario, and Pokemon. But plans changed after the Switch exploded in popularity, and the problem wasn't that Nintendo couldn't sell them, it was that they were selling out of them. They couldn't even make enough switches to keep up with demand. It was no longer necessary to deploy Pokemon as a failsafe. So instead, Ultra Sun and Moon and a few other big titles like Metroid Samus Returns were released throughout 2017 to keep the 3DS on life support in case the Switch couldn't financially carry the company all on its own. Nintendo's official position was that both consoles would continue to coexist, and the Switch wasn't meant as a replacement for the 3DS. That's pretty much always been their public position on new consoles, like when they promoted the DS as a third pillar rather than a replacement for the Game Boy Advance. Eurogamer also said an up 3DS port selling for $60 could have made the Switch look bad in its first year, and risking that perception was another factor that led to stars getting cancelled. Understandably, a few fans were pessimistic about Eurogamer's reporting, with some even accusing Eurogamer of just making it all up for clicks. The most prominent critic was Joe Merrick, the webmaster of Pokemon fan site Cerebee, who would later describe Eurogamer's reporting as BS and a fake rumor, and argue with Tom Phillips in his article's comment section. Now with almost five years hindsight, we talked to Joe and asked what he makes of the rumor. He told us he thought Sun and Moon might have been ported to Switch purely for the sake of testing and was never meant to become an actual product for sale. Maybe someone at Nintendo saw it running on Switch in HD, got the wrong idea, and leaked it to Eurogamer. 
Or maybe, Joe says, Tom's source just made it all up. We'd heard both theories before, and we'd already been in talks with Phillips during this video's production, so we asked if he thinks that might have been what happened. He flatly denied both possibilities, reiterating that Eurogamer doesn't run stories based on a single source, and the typical requirement is three sources at minimum. He wouldn't reveal who his sources were, of course, but he did say they were in professional positions where mistaking a test port for an actual game would have been impossible. To be fair to Tom, the guy has a pretty good track record when it comes to his reporting. He was the first to report on the Switch's design and internal hardware specifications almost three months before they were officially revealed by Nintendo. He was also the first to report on the Super NES Classic, Diablo 3 on Switch, and several other games long before they were announced. Not everything he's written about made their way onto store shelves, like an English localization of Mother 3, but suffice it to say there are a lot of clout chasers in the gaming industry with fake insider info, but Tom isn't one of them. He told us he stands by his post-mortem on Pokemon Stars, and for the record, reiterated that the Pokemon Company did originally plan to release an Alola-based game on Switch codenamed Stars in Holiday 2017. Looking back on Tom's original expose, there's a few details worth re-examining with the benefit of hindsight. The first is that his sources reported that Sun, Moon, and Stars were all developed simultaneously, although work on Stars was paused at one point so Game Freak could focus on finishing up the 3DS titles for their holiday release date. We'd like to point out that Gen 7 removed a lot of the bottom screen functionality and touchscreen features that were used in Gen 6, like the Dex Nav and Player Search System. Sun and Moon did use touch features for mechanics like Pokemon Refresh, but touch could have easily gotten replaced with motion controls, which is exactly what Game Freak did for Let's Go Pikachu and Eevee. If they thought Gen 7 would eventually make its way to Switch, that would explain why a lot of those bottom screen and touch features didn't make their way into Sun and Moon, which mostly just used the bottom screen for map and menu navigation. It's also worth noting that Gen 6 offered stereoscopic 3D for Pokemon battles, but Sun and Moon didn't. Tom told us his info on Stars was accurate, but noted that by the time the details got to him, then out to the public, that info may have already been outdated, and Game Freak's plans might have changed before his article was even published. In a later interview, Sun and Moon's director Shigeru Amori said the idea for the Ultra Games started late in Sun and Moon's development, so around mid to late 2016. And in more interviews in the years that followed, Omori and Junichi Masuda revealed that Let's Go Pikachu and Eevee and Sword and Shield entered production at around the same time, when Sun and Moon were wrapping up in 2016. In other words, the development on all three pairs of games began around the same time information about Pokemon Stars made its way to Eurogamer. All of that going down in a short window in 2016 certainly doesn't prove stars ever existed, but it does indicate that Game Freak's plans were being formed, solidified, and possibly changed around at the time. In an attempt to corroborate Tom's reporting, we reached out to about 50 of the developers who worked on Sun and Moon, but unfortunately, we were rebuffed at every turn. Pokemon keeps their people on a pretty tight lockdown, more so even than Nintendo, so NDAs prevented us from getting a single scrap of info either confirming or denying that Pokemon Stars ever existed. There was a lot of smoke, but we can't say conclusively whether or not there was ever a fire, so we're gonna have to rate this one as still just a rumor. As far as we're concerned, the case is still open, but if anyone out there has first-hand knowledge of Pokemon Stars, we ask that you please reach out to us on Twitter. Maybe we can work something out mutually beneficial. We'll keep digging around for info, and hopefully someday we can make a follow-up video and finally put the rumor to rest, one way or another.
we never worked on anything, even pitched anything, that would be similar to, like, Breath of the Wild or Ocarina of Time, Wind Waker. We never worked on a game of that format. We never worked on anything that could be called a traditional Zelda. Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online Masters of Social Work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. In 2008, a few months after Retro Studios released Metroid Prime 3, rumors started to spread that their next project was a Zelda game for Wii. Interviewers spotted Hylian memorabilia hanging on the walls of Retro HQ, and fans were hyped for what a Western Zelda made in Texas might look like. Retro actually worked on a GameCube launch title called Ravenblade they said was going to be like Ocarina of Time with some twists. Now almost a decade later, hopes were high for Retro's Wii project, but excitement faded as years passed without any official announcements or leaks. In 2012, IGN asked series creator Shigeru Miyamoto if there was any truth to the rumor. Miyamoto said, In terms of them working on a Zelda, it's not out of the question, certainly, for them to work on an entire Zelda game amongst themselves, but they're too busy for that sort of thing right now. It would probably require me to be involved to a great extent as well, so I would have to get over there quite a bit too. I'd probably have to live in Texas. Retro's next game was Donkey Kong Country Returns, and after a while, fans forgot about the Zelda rumors. Well, until 2020, that is, when Metroid fan site ShineSparkers noticed some of the game's concept art hiding in plain sight. Over the past couple years, a former retro artist, Sammy Hall, posted over 100 pieces of art on his ArtStation account, a social media platform similar to DeviantArt. The story quickly went viral, and apparently realizing he shouldn't have posted that stuff online, Sammy immediately deleted all his social media, his personal blog, and basically went into hiding, never to be seen again. However, we managed to get a hold of him with some internet sleuthing, and talked off and on for a couple weeks. It was great talking to Sammy, but he ultimately declined our interview requests. Luckily, however, we were able to grab some info from his old websites before he deleted them a few years ago. We were also able to speak with two other retro employees familiar with the project. One is Paul Tozur, one of the game's two programmers. I feel the statute of limitations has 
expired on a lot of this because it's 15 years ago, and I'm interested in telling the truth. The other person was only willing to speak as an anonymous source. We know who this person is, and we're able to confirm their identity, but we can't share who they are in this video. It's a pretty secretive subject, and as it turns out, Retro Zelda Project was bigger than you probably thought. There's much more than just artwork. There was actually a playable prototype with nine months of work put into it. By the way, make sure to stick around to the end of this video. You're in for a mind-blowing surprise about 15 minutes from now. We're getting ahead of ourselves, though. Before we get into all the new information we dug up, let's start with the art and info that dropped in 2020. We should note that every image used in this video has been digitally upscaled for clarity, and will also show the name of all concept art in the bottom corner. We acquired these image names by downloading the concept art directly from Sammy's art station, which are worth some attention because they reveal some clues. For example, these pieces are called Rhino Sketches, and this location artwork's called Rhino Land, which suggests they go together, with the rhinos living in or around the city. On his now-deleted art station, Sammy described the concept art as being made for a cancelled Zelda project worked on from 2005 to 2008, applying different mediums as well as combinations to explore a wide range of styles. It was a fun pre-pre-pre-production origin story of the Master Sword. Within the bad ending of Ocarina of Time, we were exploring the last male sheik's, after a genocidal ethnic cleansing, journey transforming into the Master Sword, all while the Dark Gerudo were giving their 100-year birth to Ganon. For folks unfamiliar with Zelda's three timelines, Ocarina's bad ending refers to the timeline that occurs if Link is defeated by Ganon. That's when this game would have taken place. By the way, fans often wonder how the Gerudo race continues to exist if there's only one male born every hundred years. Ocarina's script director Toru Osawa answered that question in a Japanese magazine we translated for an upcoming Ura Zelda video on this channel, but it's worth sharing here. He said the Gerudo women marry men from other tribes, and it's not uncommon for them to kidnap men just for that purpose. The children born from these interracial marriages always have features of a pure Gerudo, and as long as men remain captivated by Gerudo's exotic charms, their bloodline will never fade. All the offspring are daughters, except one son born each century. In addition to the Sheikah and Gerudo, Retro's artwork also shows some new variants of old races, like Deku Warriors, as well as the Dark Valu race, which seems to be a corrupted version of the Dragon race from Wind Waker. There's also some brand new races, like this Axolotl-inspired creature, and a few pieces dedicated to steampunky clock kids, including a clock boy and clock girl. Weird, weird, weird stuff is how Sammy described the project. But games in the Zelda universe have very weird stuff. These were exploration and tests to exercise a range of potential art directions. Several population centers can be seen as well, like Horntown and a connected area called Horntown Roots. Then the bizarrely imagined Rock Town, like an impressionist painting come to life. There's also Lightning Town. Zoom in and you can see some people providing scale and there's flying airships tied to Lightning Town as well. Zoom in on this one and you can see what looks like ships bombing a village. These are, however, early concepts, and there's no guarantee they would have made it into the game. Sammy wrote, Highly experimental concept designs and art direction. Slinging whatever crap at the wall, see what sticks. Nothing more fun than early Blue Sky pre-production. It's fun to see how the game was taking shape, but how serious was Retro about actually making it? 
When all this artwork went viral in 2020, fans were wondering if it was a real project or if Sammy was all on his own going nuts with a paintbrush. Right after his art was discovered but before he disappeared, Sammy provided a brief statement to IGN. He said, I doubt many at Nintendo proper saw much of any of this stuff. I was mostly put into a room like Milton from Office Space and tasked to brainstorm between other projects. We weren't entirely convinced it was a one-man job, though. Sammy may have downplayed the situation to cover his retreat. So we contacted everyone who worked at Retro during this time, about 70 people total, all the way down to the accountants and janitor. Almost everyone was either unable or unwilling to talk but we caught a break when one agreed to share details as an anonymous source. They told us Retro pitched a lot of games over the years, including some that fans have never heard about, even as rumors. And truth is, most pitches never become games. That's just the nature of the industry. So we asked, would it be fair to say the Zelda spin-off was nothing particularly important, that it was never taken too seriously and it was just one of countless ideas that basically went nowhere? They took exception to us suggesting Retro would half-ass a project, especially a huge Nintendo IP. They set us straight. Everything they pitched to Nintendo was taken seriously. Retro had multiple developers supporting even preliminary takes on every project. There was a lot more of the game that was never made public, much more than Sammy's art. Around the same time we were talking to our source, some huge Nintendo leaks happened. A lot of the Nintendo 64 development assets, beta sprites, and more visual aspects soaked up most of the media coverage, but there was also a spreadsheet for internal company use, not meant to be seen by folks like us, with a list of in-development games circa late 2005. One of those games was called Project X, developed by Retro Studios. We went ahead and translated the part around Project X so you can read it. The spreadsheet includes some games that did release, like Mario Party 8 and Battalion Wars 2. Based on outside info, these appear to be Other M and Smash Bros. Brawl, which were also completed. Some of them got cancelled though, like the Battalion Wars spin-off Night Wars and of course Project X. The spreadsheet says it was gonna be in pre-production at least a few more months and that it's an action game featuring Sheik from Zelda Ocarina of Time. Some of y'all might be thinking, wait, Sheik? I thought this game was gonna star the last surviving male Sheikah. We were confused on that point for a while ourselves, but what Sammy actually said was it's the origin story of the Master Sword within the bad ending of Ocarina of Time, exploring the last male Sheik's journey transforming into the Master Sword. It's probably safe to assume male Sheik was a typo, and he meant the last male Sheikah, the race Impa hails from. A lot of news sites that reported the story implied he was the playable character, but actually the story focused on the last male Sheikah's transformation into the Master Sword, but the playable character was Sheik. It's worth noting that when Skyward Sword released six years later, it also told the origin story of the Master Sword and how Fee's spirit was laid to rest inside it. That's pretty similar to the plot of Project X, so it seems Nintendo repurposed the idea for their own Wii Zelda. The leaked spreadsheet also identifies who's overseeing production back in Japan. Nintendo Software Planning and Development Production Group 3, headed up by Kensuke Tanabe. NPD Group 3 oversaw development on classic titles like Paper Mario, Thousand Year Door, and Mother 3, as well as games like Mario Strikers Charged, Kirby, and Metroid Prime 2 and 3. Interestingly though, they never touched a Zelda game in their entire history. 
In other words, we had Retro, a talented developer who'd never worked on Zelda before, being managed by a veteran Nintendo division who'd never overseen a Zelda before. Project X was on the road to becoming something completely different to Zelda games of the past. Our anonymous source told us, We never worked on anything, even pitched anything, that would be similar to Breath of the Wild, Ocarina of Time, or Wind Waker. We never worked on a game of that format. I shouldn't say too much, but we never worked on anything that could be called a traditional Zelda. We were a little confused. Were they trying to deny the game ever existed? What were they saying exactly? I'm just saying we never worked on anything that could be equated to the same type of game as a Zelda, as a Breath of the Wild, and so forth. We never worked on a game in that format. So we asked what the genre was gonna be. Sammy Hall's notes said it was set to be an action JRPG. So was that the twist? That the spin-off was some sort of JRPG? Maybe turn-based? Our source told us no. Retro never planned or even pitched anything that could be considered a JRPG. We had a long list of questions, but most of them they'd only give us vague answers to, and he refused to say what made Project X so non-traditional. So we redoubled our efforts to find more team members. It took a few months of emails, LinkedIn connections, contacting the same people that ignored us the first time, etc, etc. We'll spare you the details, but long story short, we finally got in touch with one of Project X's programmers who was willing to speak on the record. That someone was Paul Tozur who was also a programmer on Metroid Prime 2 and 3. He answered every question our anonymous source wouldn't. I see people, you know, commenting on that concept art on the internet and being like, oh my god, Retro was working on a Zelda game, that would have been so awesome. And, and like, I understand that feeling, but what they have to understand is it was not actually a Zelda game. At no point was it anything like, really anything like Zelda. It was... Uh, an experiment gone wrong that happened to be set in the Zelda universe. So what was the gameplay actually like? Paul said it was badly undercooked, like a simplified version of Whack-A-Mole. He was in charge of coding the combat, which he describes as Sheik standing in one place unable to move, surrounded by a group of enemy wolves, which by the way is why there's so much wolf concept art, and they jump at you one at a time, and you just flick the Wiimote to kill them. There were four or five wolves, maybe six, and they would just be in their idle state waiting to pounce at you. Then they'd jump one by one and you'd go whack. So that's literally all it was, just detecting when the player swung the Wii remote. If so, the wolf dies, and if you don't do it correctly, you take damage. You know, for me it comes back to that famous Sid Meier quote, a game is a series of interesting decisions. So I compare that gameplay to Whack-A-Mole, but the problem is there's actually fewer decisions involved than Whack-A-Mole. Because with Whack-A-Mole, you've got all these moles popping up, and you've got to prioritize which one do I hit, which ones do I ignore, which order am I going to whack these moles in. There's actually some thinking involved, whereas with Sheik, it's pure stimulus response. So if you don't have that level of interesting decision-making, you don't really have gameplay. He went on to say that the only enemies in the prototype were wolves, but the plan was to add more enemy types if it went into full production. To be clear, Paul was just programming what he was told to program. He didn't get to decide how the combat actually worked. That was dictated by Sheik's designers. That was another code name, by the way. They called the game Sheik. But when Paul went to one of the designers and voiced his concerns, the designer said this sort of super simplified gameplay was the wave of the future and compared it to Link's crossbow training. The other programmer, Rice Lewis, was in charge of the overworld traversal, 
which was completely separate from the combat. Sheik moved around the overworld, then when she got to a point of interest, she was kind of sucked out of the overworld and into the fight like how it works in a JRPG. As for the overworld traversal itself, Paul says it was even messier than the combat. He called it, quote, a hot mess. We were kind of in disbelief. Are you sure this is the same game? The artwork is awesome. How could the gameplay be so basic? The art was never the problem, Paul told us. The art was great, and there was never any question that Retro's artists could make anything look brilliant. It was the gameplay design that was badly underdeveloped, and wasn't reviewed by Retro's other designers, like the ones working on the Prime Trilogy collection. After a while, Paul went to one of his bosses and said, Hey, why are we doing this? There's no gameplay here. We could do something like Shadow of the Colossus. I know all of us love that game. Why don't we have something where you're fighting huge monsters and you're actually crawling around on their surface? Nintendo's never done anything quite like that before. And he replied, yeah, that would be cool. But he also refused to change the direction we were heading. There were a lot of Shadow of the Colossus fans at Retro. Two of them, Andy O'Neill and Marco Thrush, left Retro to create their own studio, Bluepoint Games, and literally remade Shadow of the Colossus for PlayStation 4. That game's currently got a 91% on Metacritic, by the way. Even Eiji Aonuma, the director and producer of the mainline Zelda series, is a big fan of Shadow of the Colossus. In 2007, he told German magazine Endzone that it was currently his favorite game made outside Nintendo. A Zelda game in that format would have had a lot of potential, or even just a traditional Zelda developed by Retro Studios. But the problem, according to Paul, was Retro's leadership. Whenever anyone put their hand up to say Project X was headed off a cliff, they were ignored. Leadership thought they weren't being team players and they should just put their heads down and do their jobs. But Paul points out that part of being a team player is being willing to say, hey, there's an iceberg, we need to turn the ship right away, and not just blindly follow orders. But unfortunately, those warnings fell on deaf ears, and development continued in the same direction. Pre-pre-pre-production, as Sammy put it, started in 2005. Then, after Nintendo greenlit the project in mid-2007, Paul and some others were brought on for actual pre-production, which lasted nine months, up until the prototype was pitched to Nintendo. So how did the pitch go? Paul told us, Nintendo couldn't really make heads or tails of it. Their reaction basically boils down to, this is seriously what you're proposing? Really? It was immediately rejected. That's what I was told, but I wasn't there when it happened. And I suppose there's a possibility it never actually happened and they decided not to show it to Nintendo. Nintendo gave us the green light to make the prototype, but they had zero input or visibility during the nine months of pre-production, which is one of the reasons it failed. Two weeks later, Paul resigned from his position at Retro Studios. Our anonymous source suggested, in his vague way of answering questions, that the decision to cancel Project X might have also been influenced by Retro's top three developers, Mark Piccini, Todd Keller, and Jack Matthews, leaving Retro to start their own company, Armature Studio. They left the same week as the pitch, although we heard conflicting reports whether their departure or the failed pitch happened first. How much talent was working on Project X? Well, one of the guys who left, Mark Piccini, was the design lead. He'd also been the director of all the Metroid Prime games. Todd Keller left too. He was the lead artist and art director on the Prime games, and he was leading the artwork on this project as well. Sammy Hall was working under Todd along with some other artists, although Paul can't remember who they all were. 
Vince Jolie was the animation lead, the same guy who led animation for Prime 3. There was one more designer, but Paul didn't want to identify him, and Paul and Rice Lewis were the two programmers. In total, there were at least seven people working on this project, but probably a few more Paul can't remember. Paul says many on the team, including himself, thought Project X needed more programmers. Retro had about a dozen more, but they were assigned to other tasks, like the Metroid Prime Trilogy collection and another prototype called the Blog Game. But he reiterated that regardless of how many programmers they had, X could have only been saved with fundamental design changes. There was a lot of top talent working on the project. The potential was huge. It could have been an awesome game, or who knows, maybe a whole side series, but the design wasn't up to snuff, and retro leadership refused to change direction. As for why, we don't really want to point fingers and name names. Stirring up hate mobs on Twitter isn't really what this channel is about, and our sources don't want that either. So to put it simply, it was just office momentum, and the higher-ups not wanting to listen to the lower-level guys in the trenches. They just wanted them to do their jobs. After three years of work, the project was cancelled in April 2008. Paul said, Rice and I tried to point out that we were headed toward an iceberg, but we were met with a lot of resistance and eventually found ourselves sliding down the deck into the icy waters of the Atlantic. Maybe this whole messy story is why everyone we talked to was so hush-hush about the project, and why a few years later, Miyamoto said if Retro was going to make a Zelda game, he'd probably need to move to Texas to oversee its development. For the record, after we talked to Paul, we reached out to everyone mentioned in this video one more time to see if they wanted to provide comment or offer an alternate perspective. They all declined or ignored our correspondence. And finally, the big question. Whatever happened to the prototype, the artwork made by all other artists, and the design documents? Paul never kept any of it to himself. He was immensely proud of a lot of the projects he worked on at Retro over the years, but not this one. He's spent the last 15 years trying to forget about Project X, not preserving it. Who knows, maybe it's all sitting on a thumb drive in Retro's basement, never to be seen again. But we've got some potential good news for folks who'd love to see a good sheet game someday. And also the special surprise we alluded to earlier. First, the good news, which is that Nintendo's still considering a Sheik spin-off. Right after Breath of the Wild's first trailer dropped in 2014, a vague statement from Eiji Aonuma led to rumors that Link was going to be female, or that players would have the option to choose Link's gender. Aonuma later clarified it was just a joke, and Link was still very much a dude. But then a couple years later at E3 2016, Aonuma said the Zelda team actually did consider having a woman playable after fans reacted positively to those rumors, but they decided Zelda would make more sense as a playable character than a gender-swapped Link. But the idea was ultimately rejected because if Zelda's off saving Hyrule, Link wouldn't really have a purpose. Shigeru Miyamoto was at E3 too, so the next day Game Rant asked him to expound on that idea. He said, Some people might wonder, you know, because the title is Zelda, it's a female character. Why isn't the protagonist a female character? But really, to me, The Legend of Zelda, the main series, Link is the protagonist. And here's the important part. But within the development team too, there have been talks about how it might be cool to have a game that features Sheik as a protagonist. It's having maybe a Zelda spin-off with Sheik as a protagonist, for example. I, I don't think that's an impossibility. A Zelda spin-off starring Sheik as the protagonist sure sounds a lot like Project X, but you know, with better gameplay presumably. 
and since the Master Sword origin story already got used in Skyward Sword, it would need a new story as well. Miyamoto said the Zelda team's been talking about it, but that doesn't necessarily mean they'd make it themselves. Nintendo's lent out the Zelda IP to quite a few outside studios over the years. Capcom made the Oracle and Four Swords games, Grezzo handled a lot of remakes including Link's Awakening, and uh, the Philips CDI trilogy. And Brace Yourself Games made the recent Cadence of Hyrule spin-off. Most of the guys who worked on Project X already left Retro a long time ago, so there's no chance it could ever get made by the original team. But whether it's Nintendo themselves or one of their partners, there's still a chance Sheik will get the spin-off series she deserves. Okay, and now for the surprise. While we were spending the last year chasing down old retro devs trying to get the story on Project X, we came into possession of another Zelda spin-off that Retro pitched to Nintendo. Yes, another retro Zelda. It was called Heroes of Hyrule. Much of the story focuses on three heroes, a Goron, a Zora, and a Rito who lived 100 years in the past. Kinda sounds like Breath of the Wild, doesn't it? But there's one big difference. Instead of staying forever young in the Shrine of Resurrection, in this game, Link's aged into an old man. There's a heck of a lot more to talk about, but that's where we'll leave it for now. Heroes of Hyrule really deserves its own video. We're already working on it and it'll be up on this channel in a few weeks. Subscribe if you don't want to miss it. We thought we were in a good position as a studio to make a, a, a reasonable effort on F-Zero because it hadn't been done for a while. Um, you know, the last F-Zero was probably GX. 16 players, um, 16 AI course editor, map editor that you could share with your friends, 60 frames a second on the Switch. Would have been awesome. Still could have been awesome. I wish we could have, could have finished that. With all these rumors about a new F-Zero floating around, we decided to take a dive into the unexplored depths of the series. Some prominent players in the world of F-Zero have been trying to bring back the series for quite some time. Toshihiro Nagashi, the producer of F-Zero GX, that's my favorite one, had some evolutionary ideas as soon as GX was finished. And Nintendo of Europe tried to jumpstart a revival. Twice. Kinda. And then there's former Nintendo programmer Giles Goddard and the revolutionary prototype is team built for the Switch. What would those F-Zero sequels have been like if they'd crossed the finish line? And why didn't they ever take off from the starting line? Before we get into all that, let's cover a bit of the background info so that we're all on the same track. Nintendo made the original F-Zero on SNES and F-Zero X on Nintendo 64 themselves, along with BS F-Zero Grand Prix 1 and 2 on the 64DD expansion, which were only released in Japan, and also a Virtual Boy spin-off that was completed but locked into a vault, never to be seen by the public. But around the dawn of the GameCube era, Nintendo started making fewer games themselves and relied more on outside studios. Metroid Prime was outsourced to Retro, Star Fox was with Rare and Namco, and even Zelda got lent out to Capcom. We call them collaborations, Miyamoto told NGC Magazine. What Nintendo was doing differently these days is trying to build strong relationships between the game creators at Nintendo and those at other companies. It's not company versus company anymore. Something most of these series had in common was a decline in seals, and F-Zero was sadly no exception. Every new game sold less than the one that came before it, so Nintendo contracted their old rival Sega to take the reins and make a new F-Zero for the GameCube. Toshihiro Nagashi, the creator of the incredibly popular Daytona USA arcade series, was put in charge of development. 
Even though we'd lost the hardware market, I wanted Nintendo to see how great Sega was as a company, Nagashi recounted years later. The only thing we needed to admit was that Sega did not have the ability to sell hardware. <laughs> Miyamoto was involved. He was like a god to me then. Miyamoto was the F-Zero series producer from the very beginning, and he told Nagoshi, You know how to do this. All you need to do is be confident and just do it, without hesitation. And the results speak for themselves. When it finally hit store shelves, GX was lauded by critics and fans alike, gathering review scores around 90%. Even Nintendo was impressed at what Nagoshi accomplished. After release, they called him up and asked to see the source code because they couldn't figure out how he'd made such an amazing game with the time and budget that they'd given him. Takaya Imamura, longtime series supervisor at Nintendo and creator of Captain Falcon, said, I'm at a loss as to how we can take the franchise further past F-Zero GX. But Nagashi knew he could push the series even farther and wanted to make a sequel. Talking to UK magazine Cube, he said, To tell you the truth, during the programming processes, we did not have time to develop some of the courses I really wanted to implement in the game. Courses I wanted but could not incorporate into the existing F-Zero game. So yes, there will be further advancements when it comes to the course designing. He went on to say that online play would be really interesting with a randomly generated course system. Some fans complained that GX was too hard, and to them Nagoshi said, and quote, If you feel that you've been tortured, I'm really, really sorry, but that the punishing difficulty was absolutely on purpose. So we could probably expect to see him tough as Neil's gameplay in a Nagoshi-led sequel. He also said that they pushed the cube to its graphical limits, and since F-Zero's never been a yearly franchise, presumably the next one would have had to be for Wii. But despite its critical acclaim, GX barely managed to sell half as many copies as the previous entry, and Nagoshi's ideas for a sequel never became a reality. Later that same year, a 51-episode anime was produced, and Nintendo partnered with Japanese studio Suzak to produce the anime-inspired game GP Legend for the Game Boy Advance. Nintendo was throwing the kitchen sink at F-Zero. You can't say they didn't try at the time, but seals fell even further. The entire series was dubbed into English, but ended up getting cancelled after the 15th episode aired on Fox. Suzak made one more Game Boy Advance game a year later, F-Zero Climax, but seals were so abysmal that Nintendo didn't bother releasing it outside of Japan. That was the death knell for the franchise. It was over. Nagoshi left Sega in 2019 to form his own studio, and to this day he still wants to make a sequel to GX, but it seems Nintendo just isn't interested. Nagoshi wasn't the series' only suitor though, someone else who wanted to see the world's fastest racer return, and they're gonna come up a couple of times in this video, was Nintendo of Europe. In early 2011, they picked up the phone and called Criterion Games, the guys who spent the last decade cutting their teeth on the Need for Speed and Burnout series. According to Criterion's creative director, Alex Ward, Nintendo of Europe asked me if there was any chance we could do a new F-Zero for them, and if so, could you be ready to show it at E3 in June? Because they were short of games coming to their Wii U hardware. The UK guys were trying to match Western developers with Nintendo-owned intellectual property. When word got out, some news outlets may have oversold the story a little, saying the game almost got made and would have been a Wii U launch title. It wasn't until a few years later that Ward clarified the situation. He said the guy at Nintendo Europe wasn't very high up. Maybe if it was Miyamoto himself, a deal could have been struck, but even if it was Miyamoto, Criterion was 100% owned by EA so the decision would have been up to the corporate types. And besides, Ward's team was already up to their necks making a new need for speed, so it was a bit of an exaggeration to say the Wii U almost launched with the Criterion made F-Zero. After nine years without a new entry, Captain Falcon was becoming better known as that guy who punches in Super Smash Bros., and people started asking Miyamoto why. In 2012, French site game cult polled their readers asking what series they missed the most. One of the top results was F-Zero, so they showed Miyamoto and said, Nobody really understands why Nintendo hasn't made a new one since 2004. 
Is there a chance we can see it come back on Wii U? Miyamoto's eyes opened wide and he said, I'm really pleased to hear their opinion, because since the first episode on SNES, many games have been made but the series has evolved very little. I thought people had grown weary of it. I'd like to say thank you very much and try to wait by playing Nintendo Land's F-Zero minigame. I'm also very curious and I'd like to ask those people, why F-Zero? What do you want that we haven't done before? A few months later at E3, GameSpeed asked a similar question. Mario Kart 8 made a showing, but where was F-Zero? I certainly understand that people want a new F-Zero game, Miyamoto told them. I think where I struggle is that I don't really have a good idea for what's new that we could bring to F-Zero that would really turn it into a great game again. Certainly, I can see how people looking at Mario Kart 8 could see, through the anti-gravity, a connection to F-Zero, but I don't know, at this point, what direction we could go in with a new F-Zero. Captain Falcon's creator Imamura said something similar, that F-Zero needed a grand new idea if it was going to make a comeback. Some fans bristled at their comments, new tracks, HD graphics, online play, wasn't that enough? To be fair to Nintendo though, the series had been evolving, better graphics, faster speeds, more cars, but it wasn't enough to keep seals from driving off a cliff. People just weren't buying them. So from that perspective, maybe it was gamers who weren't satisfied with mere evolution. Maybe it really was gonna take a revolution. More on that later. But to better understand F-Zero's past, as well as its future, we need to veer off track real quick and look at how the genres puttered along in its absence. During the 20-year drought, several studios pulled for position to become F-Zero's spiritual successor, with games like Red Art and Formula Fusion. If you're an F-Zero fan, at some point you might have googled something along the lines of, what games can I play like F-Zero? If you did, the top result was probably Fast RMX. Not only was it a Switch exclusive, it was a Switch launch title and was apparently received quite favorably as the next best thing to an actual F-Zero. We asked Fast RMX's designer and programmer, Manfred Lindsner, was that your intention? If Nintendo won't make it, we will? Not exactly. He said the first game on WiiWare started as a prototype of fish swimming around a curvy stream. He made a joke to his team that, and I quote, we could make a game out of it and call it Fish Zero. The joke quickly got serious though, and over the next few minutes, they decided to abandon the fish altogether and make a futuristic racer instead. They eventually made more ambitious sequels for Wii U and Switch, with some help from our old friends at Nintendo of Europe. Lindsner said, yeah, he'd heard the Criterion story. It seems some Nintendo of Europe employees are fans of F-Zero, he told us, adding a little smiley face. After we shared some not-too-exciting prototypes with Nintendo of Europe, they gave us very honest feedback. That was super valuable because we were a bit lost in technical details and they saw better than us the full potential we could reach. They helped us understand how to design tracks and environments that played and felt like we envisioned. We were very happy how the sequels turned out. And of course, we're also very grateful that Nintendo published the Wii U Physical Edition, then allowed and encouraged us to make a launch game for the Nintendo Switch. Linsner made Fast RMX with a team of just 4 guys. It's got 30 tracks, 15 cars, up to 8 players online, and it runs at 60 frames a second in 1080p. Keep those numbers in mind for later. Linsner said he couldn't share exact sales figures with us, but it was the best-selling game they ever made, and now 5 years later, it's still selling well each and every week. Another sequel, he told us, is definitely on the cards. Right around the time Fast RMX was racking up high scores, another studio entered the race, but they were determined to make a real F-Zero sequel, Falcon and all. That studio was Chuhai Labs, who needs a little bit of an introduction. Located just on the road from Nintendo HQ in Kyoto, Japan, Chuhai was funded by Giles Goddard, a programmer with a long history at the Big N. Back around 1990, he was the first non-Japanese programmer to ever work at Nintendo, simply put because they couldn't find any Japanese programmers as talented as Giles. He worked on the original Star Fox, Mario 64, Gush and the Giant, and many others, including a 3D Game Boy game called X that only released in Japan. Giles and another British programmer, Dylan Cuthbert, worked in an office separate from the Japanese staff, 
and Miyamoto used it as a smoking room to brainstorm in. In 2002, Charles left Nintendo to start his own studio, Chuhai Labs, where they continued to collaborate with Nintendo. Like Steel Diver 1 and 2, where Charles was programming director, Miyamoto was producer, and the director was Imamura, who said he made Sub Wars' mission mode to be like F-Zero in slow motion. More recently, Chuhai released the VR spiritual successor to 1080 called Carve Snowboarding, and their newest game was Curse to Golf, which has seen its share of praise. That's a pretty long introduction, but you get the point. Giles is extremely talented, has a long history with Nintendo, and runs his own studio. In 2021, Giles did a Reddit AMA that had 1,300 comments, but we just want to highlight two of them. He said F-Zero was his favorite game on Super Nintendo, but more importantly, revealed that his studio made an F-Zero prototype with ultra-realistic physics. A month later, he sat down for an hour-long interview with GameXplain, during which he spent about one minute talking about that F-Zero prototype. Giles said he'd pitch it to Nintendo, but, and we're quoting here, Nintendo are very wary about using old IP because it's such a huge thing for them to do. It's much easier to go with a new IP than to reuse an old one. We were kind of stuck in a Catch-22 working with Nintendo because we'd say to them, we want to do this F-Zero game. Can you give us all this money? And they say, but you don't have enough people. And I'd say, well, if we had the money, we could get the people. So it was forever this kind of ridiculous Catch-22 of them wanting us to make a game, us pitching a game, and then them saying, you don't have enough people. We were dying to hear more about it, so we got in touch with them, and it turns out Giles' F-Zero really was revolutionary. Before we get into what Giles told us, we want to let you know that you can now support Did You Know Gaming by buying eShop codes, Game Pass codes, and even full games on our own store. Instead of giving your money to a giant faceless corporation like Walmart or Target, you can buy the goods on screen through us and help support these videos in the process. This isn't a sponsorship, it's our own store with everything on it curated by us and our partners, FamHype, who are fully certified to sell Nintendo products and more, so you know you won't be getting any dodgy codes from us. If you want a convenient way to buy store codes and games and help support the show, go to store.didyouknowgaming.com. Now back to Giles. He told us it was super fast, super chaotic, super realistic physics, so it feels like F-Zero, but there's a lot more depth there. It was quite interesting to see what situations you could get the entire race into. You could bump into one car, it would bump into two other cars, and they would bump into the rest of the pack and it would cause an entire pileup. So it was just fun playing around and seeing how badly you could screw up the race. A fresh take on F-Zero would have been really cool. Each car had four jets, and if a car took damage, one jet might fail, and the cards start leaning in that direction. If two jets failed, the car would flip over. The demo was made with a team of three. Charles did the programming, another guy did art, and another made some tweaks to Chuhai's custom engine, although they'd obviously need a bigger team to make a full game. Charles went on to explain the more evolutionary aspects. He said, the idea was massive multiplayer. Massive, as in 16 human players, 16 AI, so 32 in total. A course editor, map editor you could share with your friends online, and yeah, 60 frames a second on the Switch. So of course we had to ask, can we get some footage of that demo? Um, I'm consulting my legal experts in my head. I think I can, because we Nintendo didn't pay for the, the demo. We made it on our own. It was our own code, our assets, uh, and I have it upstairs. It's it's on my PC. It's just not running on the latest, uh, you know, GFX chips, whatever. Um, so yeah, we could do that. I could. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Do <laughs> Needless to say, we were pretty stoked. He also said he'd upload it to the internet so fans could download it and play it for free. Although he wanted a little something for his trouble. No, you don't have to pay for it. I'll do it for free. Oh shit! For, right. I don't know if I if I get if I get five thousand more uh, Twitter followers, I'll make it. Now we were double stoked, and over the next couple of months, we bounced emails back and forth with Chu Hai talking details. Tragically, though, the whole thing ended up falling apart over legal concerns. We'll spare you the details, but basically, we all agreed the future of Giles' studio and the games they'll make are far more important and not worth risking just for this YouTube video. But at least we got to hear the story. Most developers keep these kind of things a secret, so no hard feelings. We love you, Giles, and everyone should go follow him on Twitter anyway. The dude's a legend. Giles had said the game never got made because of money, so how much is it going to cost? He said, nowadays? Less than a million dollars, because it doesn't have to be very big, it just has to play really well. You don't need that many programmers. You could probably do it with five people, less than a million for sure. We got the feeling Giles asked Nintendo for more than a million bucks back in those negotiations. To us, a million sounds like a pretty small budget, but Fast RMX was made cheaper than that and with a smaller team. A few tasks would inevitably have to be outsourced, like how fast RMX contracted an outside composer and voice actor. But Giles has been in the biz since the 80s and has plenty of experience budgeting games at too high. The guy knows what he's talking about. That's a lot of potential financial upside with minimal investment. Giles still has a lot of enthusiasm for the project, but even if it wasn't an official F-Zero title, a lot of fans would still love to see that prototype developed into a full Switch game. We know you're going to watch this, Giles, so, you know, respectfully, please get back to the negotiating table with Nintendo, or just make a spiritual successor on your own terms. Show us your moves! Show me your moves! Also, follow him here on Twitter, folks.